Welcome to the re-release project of the Keeping Things Alive podcast, which is the republication of episodes that were originally recorded and published between 2016 and 2020 out of Western New York. My name is Laura Evans. I'm a former environmental lawyer, planner, and nonprofit staffer. I also wrote a book called Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law. The Keeping Things Alive podcast is here to explore the opportunities and challenges as we all live together on this beautiful, living, and interconnected planet Earth. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to share this conversation that I had with Jim Anderson in January 2017. This episode of Keeping Things Alive is part of a sub-collection where I am interviewing leaders from Buffalo, New York's Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign. This happened right around the same time as the 2015 Paris Climate Conference that led to an international agreement to curb the causes of global warming as well as address the effects and help various countries around the world that are dealing with a lot of problems as we speak and are expected to rise in intensity in the future. So back to Jim Anderson. He is one of the first people that I met during the 2015 Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign. He was speaking at the rally and he also helped me with um, a part of the ceremony during the gathering over Thanksgiving weekend. It's very obvious when you meet Jim or see him speak that he has a great leadership presence. He's very open, willing to speak with anyone. And I have just benefited immensely from speaking with him about my ideas and getting his advice. He really motivates me to keep doing the work that I care about, and I really enjoy being around people like that. So I'm very, very grateful to call Jim a friend of mine. Now, Jim is technically the president of Peace Action New York State. He's also vice president of the Citizen Action New York Board of Directors. But ultimately, he's a social justice activist who participates in many progressive initiatives throughout Buffalo, New York, also New York City, the entire country, and really the entire world. He hosts his own radio show, Conversations with Jim Anderson, which airs every Tuesday afternoon over WUFO 1080 AM. Jim has been participating in Buffalo's Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign from the start. He's a community leader, and he works to connect the dots that tie environmental issues to racial injustice and other social problems. He has spoken at many of the Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign events, and he continues to seek out ways to include and educate people who often get left behind with environmental issues, particularly people of color. I had a wonderful time talking to Jim about his background and thoughts on current times. Actually, um, he's the reason for this podcast because I initially started this effort as something where I would interview people and then write an article about it. So when I met with Jim and interviewed him for an article, we spoke for over four hours and I just, I could not capture our conversation in a article. And when I told him that, he said, oh, you could have recorded this whole thing. 
And that put the idea in my mind that I should start recording these conversations that I have with people because it's not something that we talk about that often and it's critical to everyone's lives. So, um, yeah, I am really excited that, you know, Jim came back for a second interview and here it is. I'm very excited to share with you my interview with Jim Anderson. We are talking today with Jim Anderson and Jim, why don't you introduce yourself uh, to the people listening? How would you describe your work and what mm. you're, what you do? Wow. Um, well, um, as you noted, I'm Jim Anderson and I'm, am both a concerned citizen as well as a cosmic citizen. I say that <laughs> I, I change it often in so many ways, but I feel like um, my presence in life is to be in life and those things that are, that affect it. Uh, I think I have a responsibility to somehow respond in some sort of way and uh, at, at least be aware of them. Um, uh, the type of response in any situation is uh, depends on what the awareness says about a certain issue or something that may be in my world. And okay. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, Jim, the last time that we got together and talked... Um, I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> it was last March, um, and you kind of inspired me to actually buy recording equipment because mm -hmm. we sat around and talked for about four mm -hmm. hours, and I tried to take notes while still <laughs> participating in the conversation, and then kind of walked really quickly home and, you know, wrote as much stuff down as I mm. possibly could. Um, mm. And it just didn't really feel like it captured it correctly. Mm. So, and then you had said, yeah, you could have recorded everything. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. where I, that's where I got um, the, I, that was probably the inspiration for buying this stuff and oh, uh, now putting it together. Cause I, so yeah, as we had talked about before, I do want, you know, different people from the climate justice movement that, kind of drew me out of Hamburg into the city in fall of 2015. I'm kind of interested in hearing their perspective. So mm. I guess, yeah, now let's go back to some of your earlier memories, um, early advocacy work, and what got you into um, deciding that you were a cosmic citizen and <laughs> advocacy work? What are your early memories of um, that? I think, uh, oh, well, I got to tell you this. Okay, go ahead. To me, um that meeting that we had last year uh, was like an NPR moment, the uh, <laughs> Story Corps. Even now, when I hear NPR and the Story Corps, when they do, I, I think of you. And and it just goes to say, you know, people can be doing the same thing, so I'm making it one thing. But uh, just wanted to say, uh, Story Corps has nothing over on you. Huh, it's thank a tie. you. <laughs> okay. Thanks. And now, what got me into this view of being a cosmic citizen is because I, I think the change for me happened in April of 1968. And this interview that we're doing now happens to be happening at a time that is going to be celebrating a person who had an impact on me uh, from that moment. Uh, April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was killed. Mm -hmm. It was April of 1968 that I decided to enlist in the uh, Marine Corps mm -hmm. with no real understanding, but um, 
only that feeling that uh, a sense of what do I have to do that I care about this country as much as anybody else. And as a black male and seeing the things that were happening in the South and not fully understanding them, I just felt like I'm part of this somehow. I just didn't know how. I felt like I was in a world where I wasn't being received that way. And I guess maybe, um, maybe I thought my enlisting in the military would show that I'm on the same team. It was while in there, in that development, um, that I think I found who I was. But it wasn't because I was in the Corps. It was because of what was happening while I was in the Corps. The uprisings that were happening in the street by people who were more aware of the issues about war and other things that our government were doing, they were the beacon and the drumbeat that drew my attention. And this only occurred for me after I was in the military. Um, maybe one day I'll have a reason why why did it? Ha- or did I only learn about it? Maybe because it was the first time I could travel, because I had to go to South Carolina, mm-hmm. and in preparing to go to South Carolina, of course, my family warned me about the South because they came from the South. I didn't live in the South. My parents came from Arkansas and Louisiana mm-hmm. uh, in the 40s to make a good living and, you know, dad and then wind up at the steel plant, you know, and um, and so I didn't know anything about the South, but they knew about the racial climate down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, had no real sense of it other than like what I saw in the magazines and maybe heard on TV and stuff. And, and while in the Marine Corps uh, in 68, um, learning uh, to survive in there and at the same time being conscious of what's happening in the streets and the different civil rights things that were going on, um, I had to have like um, a mind that would, would, before I knew it, that would allow me to focus on both arenas mm-hmm. to, to stay alive because um, it, I, I just knew for some reason that I had to be connected to those two things. And in doing so, um, the words, the uh, speeches, the activities of those who were in the street enlightened me, and yet in the military, those of us who were in everybody in the military didn't love the military. And many of us had stories of being drawn there because culturally we have been, you know, culturated towards this. It's about being in the military and being strong. That's another story, but I hope that yeah. kind of give you an answer. No, that definitely does. Okay. Um, what are your strongest memories? Or I guess what did you learn in the military that you've kind of brought with you today or what sticks with you now? Um, teamwork and how to build that team. The, the 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 concept and you see it also in sports in the military you don't sign up for the military and go straight into what let's say at that time uh what was considered combat mm-hmm. uh no you go to camp do some training in a lot of ways to get your body and mind in shape to be see if you physically fit to be able to handle the tasks that may lay ahead and secondly being able to work with others and work with others who don't necessarily look like you. And even in the context of 
the social structure. You know, in, in the military, was, you know, in, in Marine Corps, we were all Marines. Suppose, you know, that's the, the push that. But when you're in a world where that looking at people in terms of black and white, um, you know, it's like, okay, I hear you. You know, it's one thing to be in the, in the Marine Corps and, and all of us in there learning how to kind of treat each other like brothers. Um, it's how a challenge. Did, how did you learn that? Like, what were the techniques that they used? Well, um, that you still think about today. I, I in in the the various drills that we did uh, that required teamwork meant that well, you either fight and fail, mm-hmm. you know, lose out both together because you had somebody else judging you not on whether you black or white, on whether you succeed in the task at hand, and if you're fighting each other. The task at hand is going to be lost. So we both got skin in the game, and we're going to have to learn how to hold the hate and love each other doing the work together. And I think that um, being um, 18 years old, you know, and at that age where we feel tough, ain't nobody going to push me around, (laughs) Um, having some guidelines to kind of deal with that energy. And then... Um, um, doing other types of training together, learning how to walk together, to march together, be synchronized together, to become a team. Um, uh, these things that that um, uh, teammates sense mm-hmm. each other's play. Um, and I said it, it relates to sports. I, particularly, you see it in you can you see it much clearer in football mm-hmm. when they have a huddle. Okay. They don't. Uh, while you hear lately, folks talking about running a, uh, a no huddle play. Well, the only way you can get to running a no huddle play means you're so comfortable and familiar with each other that you kind of know, with with very sharp anticipation, what to do and how to do. But that only comes after you've gotten used to being in the huddle and sharing and built that comradeship and that teamness mm-hmm. that you can do that. And so. Um, I find that those are principles that don't just belong to the military, don't just belong to sports. They work in every arena. They work in households. In fact, probably in households is where we see it, where the whole house learns how to do something to work as a team. Okay, kids, no, you don't have a full-time job, but, yeah, you can wash the windows, you can cut the grass, wash dishes, take the garbage out. Learning how to work as a team to care for that which we all have to care with, care for, and that those three entities. Um, as I correct myself, saying I think the family is the starting place. You see it in the military. You see it in teams, uh, sports teams. Imagine if our progressive groups were more teamwork and on team building. Team building, right? And uh, that's. That's an issue we should talk about. Right? Okay. Have you experienced that at all in, like, advocacy work or nonprofits? Have you seen it work before? Yeah. When, as It's a hard job to get there because the culture, this is where the mixing of um, uh, what is the cultural climate at the time. So you figure coming out of the 50s and into the, even kind of still into the 60s, you had in employment this pound the table, being really like a tyrant on your workers, demanding, you know, threatening, you better get that job done, you know, that kind of atmosphere. Once we started to get more into, I would like to say the 70s and 80s, we began to realize that, um, no, uh, maybe it's better if we learn to kind of 
to, to talk in a different way. A manager shouldn't be pounding their other ways in order to get more out of your workers that, and, and more respecting and more humane. And so as the culture begins to move to, to that way, um, knowing that we should be there and getting there, it's different. You would see it in sitcoms. Sitcoms that, that you know, sometimes this is where you see TV does mimic life, where um, they would have TV shows where you had a tough boss and, and the worker would be kind of oppressive on them or hard on them. You know, or another way where you see the attitudes in male-female, that the, the female is always considered low, shy, not able to do the job, and and could be pushed aside. Mm -hmm. Those create cultural habits, you yeah. know, and sometimes unconsciously we carry that. And the challenge is when we see it, do we address it? Mm -hmm. And I don't think we always do it, but yeah. I feel uniquely fortunate um, to, to kind of be perceptive to it. And I think that comes from being in the military too. Mm -hmm. The military in its organizing and in teams that teaches you to anticipate certain things um, and which means your perception has to be vigilant. Mm -hmm. And I think I take that kind of uh, attribute and, and attitudes in any arena I'm in, whether, whether I'm in, if I were still in the military, if I was on a sports team, um, but into doing the kind of social justice work that I engage in. I take those things that I learned that, that are good for team building and bring it into that arena. And I think it's an arena that needs it really bad. Yeah, I like that idea. That's great. I want to change directions a little bit to, um, you talked a lot about your Chase Bank job last yeah. <laughs> time, and I guess that was right after you got out of the military, right? Yeah, actually. So what was your transition like, I guess, first? And then I also want to ask you about how you balanced your civil rights work with your day job at um, the bank. It was, um, it, 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 well, there was something in between there. What happened okay. when I when I got back from Vietnam and, uh, and got back and, I eventually, I had to go to North Carolina, and then when I finally got discharged in July of 72, I stayed living in New York City. Mm -hmm. And you know what the first job was? NYPD. Really? I went on NYPD for four years. Uh, I walked off the job what? because I was, a, I was serving in the 79th Precinct, which is in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. And, and what, what had happened... Um, there was a brutality case that occurred with another officer punching a handcuffed perp suspect, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and um, and and for no reason at all. And I chose to bear witness. In fact, while we were in the precinct, I picked up the radio and caught Internal Affairs Division and reported it. Wow, where did that come from? the culture of 68 that was impacting me. In 68, you had your Black Power Movement. You had your Weathermen on the campus. You had your activist activities going on all around the country. You had your progressive poets, Nikki Giovanni, and, and the things that, that were pushing back 
on the the negative racial um, environment of the United States, and at the same time, you you had the anti-war movement going on. So it was a very conscious raising moment for me. Also, you had your drug culture evolving. Mm-hmm. So the '68 was in in the political uh, dynamics that were going on. It was. It was a transformational moment and very transformational for me, but also a very connecting moment because all these moments, all these movements were giving insight into a, a newness and a way of doing things that was like challenging the status quo that needed to be challenged. And there were like many young folks mm-hmm. who were ready to engage, a lot of old folks too, but. A lot of the folks who people, uh, young, some even some of the young folks idolize today, uh, were young then themselves, mm-hmm. and and it was just a, a transformational moment that was really a movement of the people, and that and the, the musicians, black musicians like Curtis Mayfield. Uh, the Temptations, all that, the Impressions, you know, uh, songs like James Brown, you know, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. You, I mean, these were the things that were firing me up. Poets, writers, James Baldwin, all it. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, man, there's so many. I should bring a lesson, just listen to them. But, you know, all your icons that were like Stokely Carmichael, Huey Newton, uh, when you talk about Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panthers, all these things that people are like marveling at, that's. I was at the evolution and of those things. And you were things. right there in New York City. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and engaged in them. Right. Um, and the anti apartheid movement. It's the first movement I engaged in. So this I was doing while I was on in, in the member of the police force. <laughs> okay. It was it was a time when we talk about police brutality. It would at the same time that I'm working for NYPD, I'm also engaged in in community organizing. I'm a f- organizer. I'm a founding member of the National Black United Front. Mm-hmm. We formed in our unit, and because we come out of Brooklyn. Uh, a group called PBIU, Police Brutality Investigating Unit. And I'm just saying, so I was already on the side of the people mm-hmm. while working in the belly of the beast. Uh-huh. And and just know that some of the things that made the belly of the beast what it is are policies that needed to be changed that weren't changed. Mm-hmm. And those policies would wind up creating a dynamic of training people to act to the policies that were wrong and would then put those people in more in an inhumane type way of behaving. And, wow, it was a deep moment. Wow, yeah. And then, so you left the force. I left. I walked off the force. walked off. And then how did you get to the bank? Like. Well, the they um I in I'm living in Brooklyn still and a friend of mine, an older guy actually from the islands who was working for Chase Manhattan, he approached me. He he said, you know, he had been seeing me. He knew me as a neighbor and everything. And he said, uh, found a job yet? And I was I was doing the census. I was doing all kind of things to keep you know just for livelihood and. Um, 
waiting for what I thought was going to be a hearing on on the situation at, with the department. Mm. Some anyway, the um, thing that happened was he he recommended. He said, "Well, you know, we got some jobs at the bank." He asked me how was my math. I told him I'm I'm good. Mm-hmm. And so he put me in. He gave my name in. They invited me in for an interview, and they hired me. And uh, I came in and. Um, um, <laughs> When I when I, I I was still doing my social action kind of stuff, and I was going into an environment in Wall Street and Chase Manhattan in Wall Street. That environment very corporate minded. Uh, most many of the workers in there uh, could care less about the social organizing for change. They just wanted to have a job. Many of them were caught up in that kind of style. Uh, I I didn't care for that. My my jobs my time would be in between uh, going to work, going to meetings around some kind of social action, uh, while at work on lunch hour joining demonstrations that were being put (laughs) on, Um, and at the same time trying to organize within the bank in terms of consciousness, not disrupting the work that the banks are doing, Mm -hmm. uh, but just trying to get people, meet up with people and talk about other things that impact our life. Because, you know, going to work sometimes is... It's just a show. It's sometimes people escaping the reality from their real life, you know. And um, and we were about making change. And uh, I stayed there seven and a half years. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, doing stocks and bonds. I was trading for banks. Okay. And how did you get to Buffalo? Well, Buffalo is home, and because I'm a combat veteran. Um, I went, had to go into the Brooklyn VA one day and for my eyes. And the doctor was looking at me, and he said, oh, you have RP. RP is retinitis pigmentosa. It's an eye degenerate disease, uh, rare for people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually leads to blindness. It eats away, eats away at your peripheral to finally take your sight. And on October 2nd, uh, 1992, they diagnosed me with RP. They freaked out. Everybody, oh, you mind if I bring in uh, my other doctors? They came in because they wanted to see what retinitis pigmentosa looked like. So I ran all up on it and, you know, myself, because I wanted to know, too, what is this? You know, it's, I thought it was going to be a routine eye appointment to see you know maybe glaucoma and stuff which yeah i have that too and so as a result they thought that i was going to lose my sight and they recommended that i should be back in an area where i have family that could be supported and so i came back to buffalo and have been being treated for my eyes ever since they they're now they they're confused because it hasn't taken the progression that normally RP would take. I've okay. always argued that it's either Agent Orange, Agent Blue, or Agent White. Uh-huh. These are the agents we used in Vietnam um, that are used to kill the the, the forests and the, you know and clear the land. Um, when I say that we used that the military used to kill the foliage and stuff. But we who were serving there had to eat in. 
under, you know. So we you could be sitting there eating your meal, mm -hmm. and while these little planes are flying, spraying this stuff, you know, the little fizzles falling on you. It's, to you, it's like being out in a little fizzle of rain, so you're not thinking anything. You mm -hmm. Certainly you're not thinking the U.S. government is don't mind poisoning its own folks, uh -huh. you know. And and um, and then only after which to come back and find out these chemicals, which they're still studying to see the depth of impact, is a possibility to to what's affecting my eyes. So um, I, I've lost some peripheral, and I've continued. They brought in um, a specialist from the University of Michigan that ECMC, UB, and the VA hospital fund together to bring him in. So he's been, for the last 12 years, um, just really intensively doing a one-on-one -on -one with me. Wow, uh, to, I did not to track know that. It. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, and yeah? that's also amazing that yeah. that is the, I don't know, your buffalo return <laughs> based yeah. on your eyesight. And wow. and I tell you something else, which is because my whole life also is with my faith walk. That's the other thing. I, I mean, uh -huh. I feel my presence is part of that cosmic thing is for a purpose, and I'm still learning it, and I'm not afraid to step into it, which mm -hmm. has helped me to get into the different avenues of my social justice work. Wow, yeah. I, I understand that. That's great. And I, I feel the same way. <laughs> mm. Thank you. Mm. Well, so now you're in Buffalo. And I kn did you immediately start off with like civil rights no, work? I or how did you now get involved in the Buffalo community? Because well, where I'm going with this and mm -hmm. what I, I really want to hear about is... I love your story about how you, you know, then in the 2000s start making connections between environmental, social yep. justice, racial justice, like all, like, oh. I, I like your connect the dots uh, okay. information. So, okay. yeah, go um, for that. Well, <laughs> then let me take you back before I left Brooklyn. So even at, mm -hmm. while I had these jobs, the social justice work that I was doing is the major part. The National Black United Front still exists today in capacity, but on our upcoming, um, when we started out, we actually started like around 79. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, we have been doing other community work, and what 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 really brought it to a head is in um, 1976, mm -hmm. a young kid was shot in Randy Evans was shot in the head by a police officer who, not under any threat, pulled his gun, shot this kid in the head, put his gun back in his holster, went back, he was in an apartment building, went down and got in his car and supposedly freaked out, supposedly had a fit. Mm -hmm. uh, his case came to be known as the Omega, Omega Man case. In other words, um, there was a book out about the old mega man that's supposed to be affected by moon rays. And in his trial, he they basically argued that he had an epileptic fit, which is what caused him. And, and one would challenge, so you had an epileptic fit that allowed you to pull your gun, shoot somebody in the head without injuring yourself or your partner, put your gun in your holster and go downstairs and get in your patrol car. 
Okay. It's, yeah, the Epilepsy Foundation really wrote a letter, you know, said this, just said, it's, you know, it's crazy. But mm-hmm. what we in the community did at that time in New York City, uh, Mayor Koch was the mayor. We, the Black United Front, went to the mayor's office to demand and ask that they open, uh, write a letter to the Eastern District Attorney to reopen the case for the violation of Randy Evans' civil rights. And at that time, Mayor Koch said he wasn't going to do anything. So now we got an unnecessary battle because we know we're right. So we went to the business district in downtown Brooklyn and asked them to write a letter. And they, too, dismissed us. And so as we convened together to organize to say, what will we do? We said, wait a minute. We spend 80% of the money in downtown Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And at that time, one of the most effective um, tactics of the movement was boycotting. Mm-hmm. So we called for a boycott. We boycotted downtown Brooklyn. We called it Black Christmas 77. Mm-hmm. And we, we, for several weeks, we had, we, when we started out, we were out there demonstrating. We were telling people don't go in these stores. And we weren't just out there yelling. We had leaflets explaining why we were doing it. We were, we were making contact with the workers inside. Uh, we were getting, as we were doing these days, doing the boycott, the folk workers inside were giving us additional information about how lousy it was inside, no upward movement, no black managers, and so forth and so on. They were also letting us know as the weeks went on, even while we couldn't uh, sustain the capacity of people who could be in front of the stores, we got wiser because we, we were hitting several stores, the stores that had several doors in, okay, we didn't hit them as hard all the time in the manner in which we did at the beginning, but the stores only had one way in and one way out, we rocked them, you know. How did you communicate with other people who were participating in the boycott? How did they know what to do and, like, where to go? Because, and and this goes back to that whole teamwork and that working together. You don't just take a crowd out and say, we're going down and do this. No, you sit down and you talk about the rules, the principles and margins in the manner in which you operate. You had orderliness in what you were going to civically, you know, the civil disorder, the civil disorderly kind of behavior you were going to engage in, you still had order, and it wasn't just a loose gang running wild. This has always been the history of, of the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. Dr. King and them didn't just go out and, and just say, oh, okay, we're going to go out and this is what we're going to do. They were very organized. They were very committed to stand within the tactics that they were going to use, even to the point that many looking in couldn't understand. I wouldn't let nobody hit me in the head. These are some deep principles that when people are working together that they have to have clarity on mm-hmm. and, 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 and how the length and breadth of how much and how far will they go. Mm-hmm. And that's um, those, you know, so, so being... What, orga- ha- what happened uh, with the, the sto- Black Christmas? What was it, the result? The result was this. Originally, where we had asked them to write a letter... They and they refused along the way. Let me get another little piece of history that people don't know. See, at that time, 
what many people know as Al Sharpton now. Al Sharpton was just doing his little thing over in East Brooklyn and wasn't really that much on the radar other than his his relationship with Jane Brown. But at that time, uh, to show you how you had to be prepared to deal in transparency and truth, Sharpton tried, while we were doing the boycott, the business sectors were still meeting. They used to hold their business meetings at Junior's Restaurant in Brooklyn, which is the Cheese Factory restaurant, big <laughs> cheesecake rack, uh, restaurant, uh-huh. where anybody go to Brooklyn, go to Junior's, get some the cheesecake. <laughs> okay. And so these, these um, the, the, the business community, that's where they were meeting. Sharpton went down there one day and basically tried to make a commitment with them that he could get us to stop the boycott at it, they provided some funding for something he was doing. We, of course, this is where you see the internal stuff about principleness mm-hmm. uh, can be challenged, but you had to deal with it. And of course, we took him to task. And, mm-hmm. you know, some people say, oh, Sharpton did that? Yeah, he did that. And that's just to say we all can at some point be on the wrong side of the issue. He was on the wrong side. We straightened him out. Anyway, and moving on, in those meetings, you had the representatives from the different stores meeting. So the bigger stores that might say, well, we're not going to pay no attention. We're not going to sit down or commit to what they wanted, the, you know, the boycotters or those who were demonstrating. But for the smaller stores, they the work, the, those who were the managers of those stores, they said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, we need to talk, you know, because yeah. they were taking a hit. Well, what it led to when they decided they finally wanted to talk, what went to being uh, what was only a letter now had become a 10-point demand. Oh. And what we ended up with, them uh, several things. One, establishing a $10 scholarship fund in the name of Randy Evans, which still exists today, establishing a $10,000 emergency loan fund, uh, uh, in the name of Randy Evans that would be handled by CORE mm-hmm. um, and establishing a summer youth program providing uh, upward management training opportunity for work. We yeah. had we had raised the demands and we weren't backing up. So it cost them a lot more. It also grew our understanding of our own power. Mm-hmm. It shows that we had a strength when you organize, when you get organized, you can move the needle. Yeah, it was a success. That's yes. Yeah, I mean, you, and made, it, you and made something out of that yeah, awful and those, situation. And those principles remain today. And every year, from the, uh, our group each year does a annual Dr. Martin Luther King march across the Brooklyn Bridge to 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 the um, to the to Gracie Mansion to to mm-hmm. the mayor's office uh, and to lay out demands on behalf of the people. You know what that is similar to? Because our 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 leader of the National Black United Front at that time was the Reverend Herbert Doctor Reverend Doctor Herbert Daughtry, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things he you know it was sort of like Pharaoh. It was sort of like Moses going to see Pharaoh okay. and say, "Let our people go." This is I'm just showing the the link between the the faith walk and a social justice activity, mm-hmm. and yet the, the linking of a or, organized, the, the organizing of that. It's not just being a gang and running loose. It's really being focused mm-hmm. and, and 
making sure everybody in your group is is aware of why we were out there and the act and the things we were taking. We would hold every week. We would have we had a Tuesday that we called a, a touch of history. So even all of these black authors, Van Sertimer, Dr. Ben, um, 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 uh, what's skipping me now? And all all these writers would come. You know, they would individually come and speak to the group. Because the energy, people were coming together. And out of that, they would bring their books if they, you know, if they wrote a book, on whatever their notoriety was. Mm -hmm. But what you had was an exchange of information that was growing the consciousness of the people. And what you had were people who were working together to create a, a dynamic that would cause a change. And, and, and let me end some of what came out of that by this. We wind up... Uh, because in our meetings, there were those who could cook. They used to make soup. And they would make homemade soup for the meetings. Mm -hmm. And we would come. And, th and to show you how it just grew out of just wanting to have something for breaking bread, that grew into actually a small little uh, um, uh, owner-op business that worked because of the contribution, 50 cent, 25 cent for a cup of car, uh, uh, soup or something, mm -hmm. and some. And uh, and then with the different people who were writers who had written books, they would bring their books so you could get a copy of their books. And then the church itself had a couple of folks who would run the table and wind up developing into a bookstore. I'm just saying. How, how often did that happen? Every Tuesday is when we would have our touch, touch of history. And so we always had someone. Uh, whether it's from the international community coming to speak to the group. You always have people coming in. Then you have activities that would come out of the, in the group, things that people were planning. Mm -hmm. It was building up the capacity of individuals to get engaged, okay. to, to take, to, to, uh, to remind them that as a member of the Black United Front, their mindset was to be that no matter where you at is Remember, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. You got an organization you can come back to, share what you your concern is, and get some help with, or you know, even help you to understand whether it's relative or not. I'm organizing and building that team. Yeah, that's that is a really good story. Thank mm -hmm. you. Okay, so we're back to I think. Based on my notes from our last talk, I believe it was 2007, but can you fast forward now to your work? I, are you with the Peace Center at this point? But this is your like, trip down to Atlanta and you're Oh, yeah, you're in 2007. Learning. Yeah. 2007. So the reason I'm asking you this mm -hmm. is because I, I want to get us more into to the that. present day and... And the I know, linkage. well, yeah, the linkage with the climate justice movement specifically, because you are like one of the first people I met during that time. And mm. I don't know, it was just, it was a very interesting point mm. for me. So I guess we're going to have cool. to skip ahead a little bit. Cool. But well, go to 2007. What in was 2007 <laughs> uh, was the first U.S. social forum to be held in, in America. Usually the U.S. social forums are held in in somewhere in South America and sometime overseas. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time that it was going to be held in the United States. And once at the U.S. Social, social, in U.S. Social, United States Social Forum was, was going to, was the, um, 
progressive groups from all veins, all kinds, uh, were going to be coming, and it's like a big convention, mm-hmm. workshops, presentations, and so we were gathering in Atlanta. Um, it was beautiful. I, it was fascinating for me because I had never been to anything like it, and and being that it was progressive people, um, organizations, and individuals. I mean, in 2007, we were dealing with many of the same issues that were here. Did you see them bubble up now? Mm-hmm. It was there that my consciousness was raised to the what the troubles that were lying ahead dealing with water. It was there where they were talking about the need for for people to start learning how, um, how to protect the water, how to keep their water clean. That was my first exposure. It, it, it was there that even the whole transgender issues mm-hmm. came to light for me. It was at that forum that all of these progressive things really were bubbling up. And so what it did, it took, you know, for someone of color who who bear witness that sometimes in our communities we get segregated into thinking that it's just us concerned about our issue. And and um, so you get you can you can feel like um, the center of the universe is my issue, and not understand how your issue is a replica of what's going on somewhere else, and therefore miss its kinship or not see it, and you wind up missing a great opportunity. So 2007 opened up a huge opportunity, and I seized upon it. It was there in Buffalo. There was this Burke Commission in New York State whose task was to go around closing hospitals. Okay. And at in, in Buffalo, the discussion was around ECMC, who was possibly one of the hospitals being threat. So much so that there was local organizing to protect that hospital. When I was going down to the U.S. Social Forum that same year, I had to pass to Philadelphia, and while in the airport, it was in Philadelphia that I heard about another hospital closing there Mm -hmm. that attended to pregnant women. So when I got to the U.S. Social Forum and we were talking, we were all sitting around talking in this group about things that were going on, and I raised the issue, uh, anybody... Uh, experiencing anything with their hospitals. And the reason I raised it is because while we were down there at the U.S. Social Forum, there's Grady Hospital in Atlanta, which is the equivalent of ECMC here in Buffalo, was being that the workers there were under threat that they were going to be downsized. And this was a hospital that really the inner city um, relied on. Mm -hmm. So when I heard that, it immediately clicked in my mind, Buffalo, Philadelphia, Grady here in Atlanta? So when I raised the question that others who were coming from other parts of the country, are they experiencing anything like that? And others start saying, yeah, and the hands went up. And right there on the spot, we started a conversation. We built a support team that went out and marched and in support of the workers at Grady. And it just showed this dot connecting but also this team building mm-hmm. because everybody there was not black. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody there was not white. What I'm saying, it was such a diverse mix 
of folks that you had to learn how to interact with each other if you're going to do something together. By the way, it was there that even immigration is what I first came into. There's there's the the uh, there's a black organization, a black immigration, black justice immigration organization that was long talking about the issues around immigration, but in a broader frame. They weren't just talking about it in terms of those south of the border. Mm -hmm. They were also inclusive of those who are coming from the islands and expanding the conversation and challenging what seemed to be the dominant conversation about south of the border that we we have to expand it and be honest. And, And even some of that is starting to come back now as we realize that there are a lot of dynamics to the whole immigration question and um, and what we need to do and the fact that we need to do it together mm-hmm. so it was it was really the issues that are playing out now for me that was what was on the platter at the US social forum <laughs> wow. and yeah. and the, the you could feel its value you just couldn't see it and this is where one having hope, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in in a moment where you can't even see clearly, all you know is that the moment is impregnated with possibilities. And the question is, is that as you look out at those possibilities, which way are you seeing it? You know, the classic cup half empty or half filled. And either way, the next question you have to ask is the question that's asking that's in 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 the movie The Untouchables. What are you prepared to do? Mm-hmm. And that, those are some of the basic things. What do we see, and what are we prepared to, and what are we prepared to do? The U.S. Social Forum, Forum for me showed organizing in in this very collective way, mm-hmm. because with all these issues there being presented, hey, this is what's up in our sky, y'all. <laughs> you know, how much and what do you want to deal with? And as we all begin to realize, yeah, we want to deal with it, we also had to realize we had to deal with each other. Mm-hmm. And so you you could see the natural inclination for coming together. Yeah, exactly. And that and that's where we're at. Yeah. And and, do you and think we're at that again. Yeah, we're at that because at this. Do you think it's still the same thing, like from two thousand seven, or is this like another moment, like I, ten years later? I think I think is both the same and yet new mm-hmm. because nothing totally dies and nothing necessary new is new in itself just Got in it. a rebirth way and and our challenge is to see both of those moments because you have some people saying well we're doing this new thing well seemingly new to you but <laughs> actually not that new uh-huh. and even if it's new good <laughs> you know bring it in that don't mean what was yeah. Was bad, and and that's some of the dynamics playing out. That you see, you you see it in in a sort of ageism way. Okay. You know, because as you become conscious of something, when you become conscious of something, well, it becomes new, <laughs> and you think, oh wow, and 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 if it's so exciting to you, and you go out and you express an excitement like I got this new thing, then here somebody say, okay, all right, okay, just calm down. We all got it. You know, it's like, no, you don't understand. I got this new thing. Yes, there is some nuance to it, but it's not that new. And and as I said to you, it's it's sort of back to that uh, we act sometimes as if we're the movement as to 
another part of being another part of the movement. We are not the whole other movement, you yeah. know. And sometimes we act in a way, and we see it now um, uh, in some of the issues because we have folks who have um, focus on like, particular like issue. Vision. Yeah. yeah, and it's also called silos. Yeah, like that's what that's exactly where the silos come in. Right. Is that they they get so committed to it that they erroneously make the mistake of considering the rest of what's out there right. that's part of this package. Yeah, I see that all the time. Um, it definitely happens with everyone. Um, so how? So you're noticing water and taking responsibility for protecting water in communities in 2007. Where did you find out about climate change, and how did you start seeing that as an issue for um, the work that you do? Well, the, how, I, how I begin is it's that water thing. The, water, the people who are doing water were also talking about, were also talking about the contamination of it, but at, as a, for me as a military person, Mm-hmm. I remember that the veterans, like you had uh, uh, the Veterans for Peace, who were always um, been in a progressive vein, progressive vein and bringing information that is really enlightening. So you take, for instance, in the military, you can't talk about poisoning the water. Mm-hmm. And as a military person, I understand if you're dropping bombs and all kind of other stuff in, in, in countries and stuff, it's certainly not a, a healthy dose to the land, the water, or right. the people. And and those types of pollution, they don't obey borderlines. Exactly. So, yeah, they spread. And so it begins to, to, to realize that, wait a minute, this is important, right. and when you've had a chance to serve in areas where you can see this. So, as a as a, someone who served in Vietnam, mm-hmm. yeah, I've seen what napalm can do. I've seen how we just the, what the various chemicals have done to the land and to the people, and and so when you look at that and consider, hey, we're here tinkering with stuff. In fact, we should have recognized that if we'll do that abroad. What won't we do at home? Mm-hmm. You know, we like to pretend the U.S. is so up and up and straight, but we, we, there's a lot of infrastructure stuff that needs to be dealt with, and not just in buildings and roads, but in policies and be, in people's attitude. Absolutely, yeah. So um, I want to move on to the climate justice movement specifically, just for a few minutes, and then mm-hmm. kind of the parting questions too, if you're ready for those. Um, so what was your, so I guess the climate justice movement is still happening, um, and but last fall it really ramped up with the Pope's visit and the Paris climate talks, and that's kind of when I saw you mm. pretty frequently. So what was your experience with that and how did you get involved? And I don't know. What I, did you think of it? I I thought it was one of those things where we all had skin in the game, mm-hmm. and so it, it to me it felt like yeah I got to pay attention to this. Uh, what I saw is is a a fractional development. Okay. So in communities of color, the issue didn't pick up a lot. Why do you um, think that is? Um, I think that um, I think uh, out of ignorance, 
And I think on a culture, on a, on a way we've been culturalized. Um, for instance, the um, and 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 some clubs who some org, some organizations that have not tried to work the turf of other parts of the community. I mean, a lot of our a lot of our organizations, progressive organizations, are predominantly white. In the African American community, there's the traditional NAACP and Urban League, but that is not everybody. There are other organizations as well, but. Um, you take um, groups that were working on on the climate. Yeah, it's good, but everybody has been squeamish as when it comes to the racial dynamics. Okay. That I think that has been the unaddressed question, and even when it was time to be addressed, that it tightened up people' guts so much that they table it. Right. They say, well, we'll deal with it later. And they've been dealing with it later and tabling it so much that now they're not fully equipped to deal with it, but their hand is being forced in this enlightened moment of Black Lives Matter. Because, okay. you know, everybody uh, uh, like to say, we support the, we're with the Black Lives Matter movement. We support it. All that verbiage is good. Mm-hmm. But in terms of behavior, that's where you have to look at it. And and it and it's um, the way it plays out. The behavior is 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 critical. So so for me, uh, in the work that we were doing here in Western New York, um, yeah, I have to learn some stuff about the issue. And, and nobody can just hand it to me, but I also need to be in those venues where information is being shared, and that's. That's that's what uh, has enlightened me the most. Yeah. Um, do you have, do you have any recommendations for working to kind of make that better? Yeah. Um, yeah. What? Because I I mean it's the Climate Justice Coalition is still going on, and so they could change course. Like, what would be a good first or second step? I I think they have to be more transparent and more forthcoming. Okay. I, right now. Um, um, Renew New York. Yeah, New York renews. Um, okay. All, yeah. all of the, all of these, all of the stuff around climate. I've been so long. In some ways, I could be saying I should be mad that if someone walks past past me, you know, don't even consider that. Hey, Jim, um, you got a voice. You have also a way of helping with it. I do a weekly talk radio program. Uh-huh. Um, it would seem to me that if you want to educate on the issue, come on, let's do it. Now, I have had folks on do that, but I'm saying that should be one of the things that they need to think about. Most of these groups are trying to figure out how do we get more people of color and more young people. Mm-hmm. Right now, they're feeling good because they seem to get a whole lot of young people, so particularly looking for people of color it's kind of secondary because we got a lot of young people. Okay. You know, it, yeah. it's kind of where they're operating. So that's part of their gut thing. But the the, the truth is, is communities of colors have been left left out. Okay. And yes, while they should be included in this, somebody has to take the information and the knowledge on these things. They just can't be the laborers part of the movement. They can't just be when you need to show up 
uh, 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 have a show up for us. You mm-hmm. want to go to the community there and try and tell them, oh, this is about you. You need to stand up. Yeah, it's about them. But you need to spend more time on the educating for them to better understand and they can operate within themselves. They won't need your group necessarily to come in and determine when we should do a rally, what should be the target. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, when we look at Standing Rock, we concede that to our Native American sisters and brothers to be the front end voices. When we look at at Black Lives Matter, we want to shape who should kind of be the voices, who should speak, and we got more groups who are not uh, necessary of color that want to speak, and that's okay. But the real empowering of a people to help them understand what the issue is has not gone on, and and I don't think it would take those groups a lot to do the education part. The one you. A lot of groups are going into communities and knocking on doors in order to try and engage communities. That sounds really noble, and it, and it can be good. But how many doors can you knock on and get enough time standing at somebody's door to really help get them fired up or knowledgeable on some of these issues? And so it becomes kind of bogus in some ways or it lacks the kind of purity and the kind of strength it could have if we spent more time investing in growing the knowledge. Because if you grow the knowledge, you already grow another ability that is unco- that may not be seen immediately because when you know, then you can do. If you don't know, you can't do. Mm-hmm. If somebody tell you to do something, then the sincerity and your engagement is kind of, well... <sighs> But when you know and know why you engage, there's a whole different kind of energy there. And I think it, it, that works on both sides. When you're just going to get a group to come and stand and be with you to give some oomph to what you're doing, mm, you know, it, it's okay to say that. It's okay to say, hey, look, this is the issue we're doing. We need to have a show of force. We're asking you to stand with us. Uh, we know you may not have the fullness of, but let us give you a, a quick uh, cliff note kind of education on where we at and commit to doing an ongoing until you muscled up too. We're we're just now starting to to do some of that with some groups, mm-hmm. and it still is about funding. Yep. You know, many many groups. Part of it is it's some of the folks who we want to do the work are brought in and. Uh, um, the, the kind of work they're desired, desired out of them is not the kind of work that they're being financed to do. And I'm just saying it really is a stickler. I mean, look, you can't, I mentioned NPR. One cannot listen to NPR and hear a discussion over uh, not only intellectual property, but on over skills and talents that interns and others bring at a off-market price that get for an organization can get um, transferred into something much greater that they don't benefit from. Yeah, I'm just saying we got to close those gaps, and so we're. This is this is why this moment is so hugely beautiful. I agree. Yeah, I like that word. <laughs> it's beautiful because it it stirs us in a way to pay attention. It challenges us to. So if we're committed to making a just and equitable world. Okay, we got to do it. Mm-hmm. I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. We're talking, we're talking, you know, right now a lot of talk is around income inequality, 
which covers all of these points, even for communities that are uh, have dilapidated housing that don't have uh, quality, uh, the kind of quality education to make them capable of getting and earning more. Uh, don't have the funds to do to keep up yeah. with the change to this renewable energy. People who are engaged in doing the renewable energy, many some are trying to create um, uh, 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 businesses of their own. And but we got to remember we're dealing with a, a, a communities that don't have the wherewithal. And in this moment, we need to be delivering some resources to them while we're telling them, oh, this is the way to go. Yeah, they know it's the way to go. They just can't afford. And we're not really taking anything of substance to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be great to come in and work in some of these communities and get some panels and stuff done to, with no cost, uh, very little cost. We, with the, I know in Rochester, they're doing these um, solar like uh, community yeah. Roofs, yeah, yeah, we need to kind of, we don't need to be silent about it. We need to amplify that. We need to be on our media outlets to speak to these communities that could be where you could be sharing this information so you don't have to have so many different meetings to where only a few people would get to. We need to put the information out there to yeah. vast. What folks. are the best channels to do that? Because I know, you know, not everyone has the internet. Not everyone listens to the radio. Not right. everyone watches TV. So I guess do you kind of, I don't know, I go think, at all of them? Yeah, I think we have to scope out. We need to, almost like a research and development arm of our progressive movement, you know, like in big corporation, they got research and development, they're looking at- Yeah, they're strategizing, they're working together. And we need to be doing it, but you can't do that without knowing the lay of the land. So we need to know how many media outlets that directly feed into these zones, uh, what types of media do they have? Do, do they have radio? Oh, they have access TV. They have they have newspapers. We need to find what are the, the venues that we could use to get more information in there more consistently other than calling a meeting every three months or so mm-hmm. and having no consistent way to keep our information flowing. I say this, and I use it on the concept. Uh, I, I like to talk about songs that we know. Not because we chose them, but we heard them so much planned. Not <laughs> yeah, because we were planning. <laughs> yeah, you, you, that you know it, and next thing you know, you humming it, yeah, and you yeah. know the word. Imagine if the things that are important in life and can make change were put out that way, flowing, like and that. somebody picks that up. Because the opposite of that is what we're getting now. Shock jocks who give you these sensationalized headlines, mm-hmm. who give you what everybody's talking about now, the fake nudes and stuff. We need the intentional, uh, um, unique uh-huh. way of educating in this progressive moment. And it even means doing some some street corners. Some oh, See, this is where uh, everything new is not necessarily new, and we're old really highlights. We need some old street corner, getting on the street corner bullhorn and talking about issues or talking about ways forward that people going to and fro as they hear it, they'll hear it. You don't have to twist their arm. They don't have to have an invitation to come sit down. If we're out there putting it out there, it is like dropping seeds, and it will take root. Thank you. That's that's good. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. And I hope, or yeah, 
that's a good way to operate. So good good idea. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not your idea. It's been done before, but people forget. And so that's really good. And it operates on all level. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it is a societal one. We need to have it on. It's a personal one. And it definitely is an organizational one that has to break the change. So, well, we got to do it this way. Yeah. Yeah, you may want to do it this way, but you got to deal in reality. You got to deal with the fabric you have. Yeah. Okay, we are we're running running a little long, but okay, I really no no we're, we'll <laughs> we'll get it. It's, this is great, so thank you. Um, I want to change to my last two questions. Um, to start off with, you know, answer this any way you want, and you can take mm-hmm. as long as you want. But um, where do you experience like? Currently, right now, as yourself, like where do you experience a world that is dying? I guess either in yourself mm-hmm. or society, Buffalo, but you know, whatever comes to you with that question. <laughs> I I think um, well, I think that right now um, we're at a crucial moment, but uh, in our political comprehension and participation. Um, there is dying and yet there's rebirth occurring. There is a line in the, um, okay. So that's my follow up question. Um, so you can just answer both at once. What's dying and what's being born. Right. Yeah. There, you know, um, um, then the, the question is challenged by the, the line in the raising of the sands, uh, when you, um, judge a man, judge him in its fullness. And I think that line would apply to our aspects of looking out on the world. And again, back to the half full, half empty, the possibilities that, that exist challenging challenges us to see at the same time the reality and that that we hope for. If our hope is to have a, a just and equitable world, that's that's good, but hope is nothing without the work to go with it. And therefore, we need to tune into the quality of our work. We need to check our work. See, you know, um, we'll, we'll have speeches, we'll do rallies, and we'll, we'll tell some people what they need to do. But how much do we go back to follow up to see what the impact of it? I mean, I hear a lot of people say, yeah, I was at that rally. Okay, so to to what end? Mm-hmm. What did it do? And and if it didn't do what it was supposed to do, what, what are you going to do? I think we need to call the road to ourselves, even in our organization, to help us and not fight off more than in the falsity of the battles we're fighting. For instance, we're in a crisis moment now. Yes, Paladino needs to go. But, you know, when the people were raised, roused up on it and say, yeah, throw Paladino out. We want him to resign. Okay, yeah, okay, that's far-fetched. But even without asking him to resign, if he's been in violation, what's the real mechanism for removing him? It still hasn't been very clear. Some people still saying the local school board has the power. Others are saying the the state commissioner person uh, woman has the power, and and no one's dealing with the time factor involved. And when go ahead, can you just really quickly explain the issue with Paladino? Yeah, Paladino is is a member of the Buffalo Public School District School Board. 
and and has often been engaged in a series of emails and uh, writings that he sends to local newspapers that make disparaging and off-color remarks about uh, not only school board members, but his latest action has been that in a very sadistic and mean mean spirit and awful one about the president and the first lady. In fact, wishing him uh, death and at the same time calling uh, the first lady and him both everything but a child of God. I just don't want to say that. Yeah, that's Nineke. fine. And, no, I, I just wanted you yeah, to clarify and he, for people. And the words that he said has brought so much outrage that you have your Nat Boston Globe, the New York Times, papers all over Chicago Tribune, everybody noting this nastiness that he has put out and knowing that this should not be tolerated. Well, here, here's the situation. When people started pushing back on the, on the piece that he wrote, you would it, it, it they call for his dismissal, but nobody expressed what's the mechanism for how it gets done. Now there are mechanisms that if the people just stay roused up, it can force the issue. Mm-hmm. But there should be a mechanism in place. Look, in, we have ways of censoring people in our congressional levels and our state levels. We have ways of. Um, uh, censoring uh, how we do sports people, uh, announcers on radio and TV when they use certain epithets that are inappropriate. We have, even in our Buffalo students' code of conduct, a kid say something like what he said, there, there are penalties that that are not nice and it don't mean you okay, you can still sit at the table. You have to, have to be dealt with. We got a school board that have brought these these policies into play on our students, but don't use them on themselves. Mm-hmm. And it makes one say wonder that when he first started all these trades or sending out the, these negative emails, why somebody didn't look to ensure that in being a school board member, what does it say about how to remove a school board member? There shouldn't be any, well, we're still looking into it and trying to find out. They, it there should, should be, be a policy. Like, yes. That's a, and yes. That's and something all, that should have been forced. And all this excusiology, and it's causing a lot of uh, discourse on the ground mm-hmm. because some folks are feeling like it's taking the focus of young people and parents' eyes off and making sure their kids be, are doing what they need to do inside of the building to dealing with the cyber because there's some people who want to stop the world yeah. and make this the total issue. We don't need to do that. We need people who are in authority to just do the action. Yeah. The people, the people can demonstrate and call for it. And 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 the only way I see him being removed is if the people create such a mass disruption and even to the possibility of keeping kids out of school mm. that would force the the commissioner to have to act because of the huge disruption. But is that worth it to deal with him? Got it, yeah. What do you think? I think that no, but I think at the same time we have to use this as a teachable moment to ensure that our kids understand because you know what part of the deficit is? Some folks don't know how we got here, and then we also have some folks who are actually protecting yeah. Paladino. I mean, the, 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 yes, you're right. The, uh, the law, you can't necessarily penalize someone because you don't like what they said. 
this is beyond That's, not liking beyond what is said. That, right. It's really yeah. like you couldn't come up exactly. with anything. And just... and no matter what cause and so I think the best way to get it done, I hope that there'll be enough activity to raise up enough people to create such a disruption mm-hmm. that they'll have to. Okay. That that'll be the only compromise that they can make. He's off the board. Yeah. If he want to do it in his private life, yes, but we're not going to have it in his public life. And I and I would say people who live in South Park need to be shamed mm-hmm. that they sent this character. Yeah, because he didn't just develop that habit. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to catch a lot of people in the net because there are a lot of people who receive benefits from him at some point that they're trying to get more so they're going to be protected of him and then there are others who just i think are afraid yeah. to call him out you know they yeah. want to like can't we all just get along yeah but in this manner when there's a choice between right and wrong there is no neutral ground no middle ground you either right or you're wrong yeah and there are consequences yeah thank you for explaining that because, <laughs> thank you yeah it was good Okay, so we are out of time, yeah, but yeah, it always runs. I know it, it. Well, you know, for this. <laughs> um, so, uh, are there any like just real quick like parting words uh, for people listening? Just kind yeah, of wrap I it think, up. I think that the. I think I think that you know, um, interviews always wind up um, um, being um, something that you never know how they might sprout sometime. And, but I always think that interviews provide an opportunity for deep listening. They're, they're here beyond what we want to hear and, 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 and allow a listener to, to try and really get into trying to hear the way that they, if they can feel the way a person is speaking. Um, I know some of the things that I say is from a reality of, of my walk in life and, and how I see it. And I also recognize that some things that I say about how I see, it's like somebody be saying, where? I'd be trying to see it, <laughs> and which is cool. And But the spirit that moves me to, to say it, I operate in a, in a vein that I don't want to be saying I wish I had a, Oh, I, I shoulda. Uh, when it comes, I tend to let it go, and so I hope people will f- will find some way to make some sense of the pieces. And I do trust that it will come together. I know that um, things that I've learned on all these issues, and particularly in this climate movement, uh, have come to me. Boy, this is taking longer than the interview. Have come to me um, um, not because I already knew it, but. Our learning is a learning curve continuing. I'm learning every day. In the climate march, huge learning curve, but also a huge, deeper engagement curve. And so I would encourage everybody, find your voice, let it loose in the movement, because in the movement with one another, you'll get folks who will help you, you know, get the right stuff to say. Um, If you get into an area uh, where people who are client climate deniers mm-hmm. uh, they don't want to hear you you know that's not where you want to be dropping your yeah, bucket anyway no <laughs> but it's to those who who don't know and you know what if you get a chance later to go to NPR NPR this morning had a couple of guests on talking about 
what the percentages were or where people understanding was about the climate issue. Uh-huh. And you, you know the largest pool were those who don't have any real sense about what it is. Back to the education point, the more time needed, saying that they know it's something about it, they know it's something important, but they need a little, they need some more. Yeah, they're they're hard concepts because you can't see them, and they're on a really big scale. So the education part is important. Hugely important. And and, and the and honesty of our movement is is Roger uh, Roger Downs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember being at a Demos event. Demos is uh, one of the leading progressive think tank organizations in New York. We were there at an affair, and we were sitting and talking. One of the things we talked about, again, the absence of uh, people of color and the more education that needs to happen. And I think we're starting to see it. it I hope it gets expedited and <laughs> speed, <laughs> right. speed up for real, for real. But yeah. I think, I, think it's I think more people are paying attention. I think it is, and I, I think you're you're I've one of the representatives that. of the way. I mean, you're the the kind of new skills, the kind of energy that is coming into play now, is going to advance our cause by leaps and bounds. Well, thank that's you. That's why I have. That's why I have faith that we're gonna we're gonna be all right. We are gonna be all right, but we gotta, uh, as they say, walk together, children. <laughs> you know, keep the faith. Yeah. You know, and uh, we we're gonna we're gonna be all right. It is not whether we resolve it all in our lifetime, but it is in our lifetime a question of that we work towards resolving it. I I'm love working that. towards resolving it. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> you I, are. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank for you, that. Laura. I, I always you always I always fly off on you. So that's you're gonna get your. Thunder and hold me uh-huh. tighter. So yeah. even practice dropping on me, Matt. Then <laughs> I tell right. you there, okay? All right, I yeah. will. Thank okay. you. Thank you so much for listening to the Keeping Things Alive podcast. My name is Laura Evans, and if you would like more information about me, this podcast, or other work that I care about, please visit www.keepingthingsalive.org.